Welcome to another episode of PhD Bows. I'm Zain Yao. And this is Liz Wayne. And today we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So it only seems suitable to begin our episode about imposter syndrome by defining it for those listeners that may not be as familiar with it. So looking at a couple articles from the Chronicle of Higher Education, one says imposter syndrome is rooted in a constant fear of being discovered to be a fraud and a charlatan. Um, while another one, a first one in 2013, while another one makes the point that often there's this particularly gendered and racialized aspect of imposter syndrome. Um, so this was coined back in 1978, and imposter syndrome expert Valerie Young says the condition refers to people who have a persistent belief in their lack of intelligence, skills, or competence. They're convinced that other people's praise and recognition of their accomplishments is undeserved, chalking up their achievements to chance, charm, connections, and other external factors. And what this Chronicle of Higher Education um, points out is that imposter syndrome is not just about feeling out of place or un unworthy. It is a symptom of a culture that falsely defines success and worthiness through the myth of meritocracy and has much to do with racial and gender stereotypes, especially around stereotypes about what is um, an academic look like. Do you want to add mm. anything, Liz? Or how did you think that one? No, I think that was actually a really great description. Not going to lie, I'm, I'm very surprised given that we, this came from Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, this was just me. Um, I, I thought it would be a little bit more legit to, I just like Googled for the Chronicle of Higher Education. So I just like quickly look at two articles there. So I, I oh, guess for our listeners. So that's why it sounded really official and formal and kind of <laughs> thorough. Yeah. So for our listeners, I'm sure that um, if you don't know the Chronicle of Higher Education, as some of our uh, listeners aren't in academia, this is like the major publication for universities and academics, I think internationally, actually. Yeah, I think that's a great way to start this. Imposter syndrome, it's something that either people have already heard about, um, may feel like they experience. It's, it's like this term that is floating around. And I think it is important to talk about this and to think about how does this fit into our lives, both professionally and um, socially. Uh-huh especially as people who are going through the academy. No, it's a, it's nice. I was, uh, I met with a friend yesterday. Actually, mm -hmm. I spoke to her for the, this is the first time I've actually spoken to her, but she follows our podcast. And so um, we met up because this is probably my last chance to see her since she's in an earlier stage of the program. And she's heading back to California to be with her partner for the summer. And obviously I'm graduating, but it was really nice because... I felt like as, as women of color, we're really able to, to bond and talk about things. But I talked talk to her about the whole imposter, like, that we're going to do imposter syndrome next. Yeah, what did she say? Oh, she has some good things. And I said I was, I was going to quote her. So, <laughs> so once <laughs> cool. we get into it, I'll be like, oh, there's this really great point that Amber Vasquez brought up. Mm, mm, you're so scholarly. I like this. In what way that I'm, I cite people? <laughs> <laughs> all right fair point fair point um welcome back this is the ph divas or rather we are the ph divas i'm liz this is zine i hope everyone's <laughs> having a good end of semester surviving all the finals to be graded and zine, did you written. forget who you are is it too bad are, hey. are you okay right now it's been a rough <laughs> It's, you know, it's rough. End of semester is rough on all of us. 
Um, obviously, yeah, as, as yeah. our listeners may have noticed, we took a little bit of a, a, a one-week hiatus and then just released the <laughs> last week. Part of it is that we're just working out some technical kinks um, with our recording, because unfortunately, the very fancy microphone that we bought for my, the recording on my side seems like there might be some connection loose. So we've actually been recording some really fantastic sessions and then finding that the audio was unusable, which has been very unfortunate. Yeah, I think anybody who's ever um, actually done a podcast may be able to relate to that. Um, I, I, I used to feel really bad about it. And then I started talking to other people who did podcasts and kind of realizing this is like a, um, a rite of passage almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, a call to arms in a way of, you know, you better up your game if you really want this to be good. But but it happens to a lot of people, and um, we are learning. <laughs> we are learning. Yeah, a year in, and we're still, you know, growing and developing as people and as podcasters. It's quite thrilling, really. So <laughs> in case the people are interested in the technical aspects, um, at the moment we're trying to record on both sides using GarageBand. So that's been exciting. So... Uh, you don't sound excited at all. You're so I, skeptical. I don't know. I, well, I'm just really anxious about this recording turning out well because, you know, we've made so many attempts to do this now and it's just, uh, you know, feels like we're disappointing people or each other when things don't work out. Oh. So, so I'm just like scared of committing to this recording. Uh, I understand what you're saying. So don't worry. We're, we're in this together. I'm glad I'm here. But I, oh, oh, I, um, but I'm excited about this imposter syndrome conversation. Um, and I want to first say that the teaser that we gave out, it really wasn't even a part of the discussion. It just kind of came up and then it ended up being this other kind of thing. And then, you know, we had a guest and we, we that wasn't what we were going to talk about, but I definitely wanted to follow up on that. Mm-hmm. Like it seems to, it's a conversation that seems to come up naturally when you're having like genuine conversations with people in graduate school. And particularly, I think one way that we're trying to address it is like, is there something specific about talking about, about imposter syndrome, especially when you're a woman of color in the academy, given that statistically and structurally, it is not a space that is hospitable to people like us, to put it lightly. But I think that Liz brought up some really fantastic critiques. And since then, I feel like, um, so one of our academic um, uh, heroes, (laughs) Dr. Chando, had actually this great Twitter conversation about this um, Mm -hmm. last week. And one thing I was really struck by is that she was commenting that like imposter syndrome is an entirely... Um, understandable, rational, psychological reaction when you're a woman of color in the academy because you are just you are reacting to the fact that this place is structurally not meant for you. Like it, like imposter syndrome is not just something that's in your head that you just have to get over and like, um, you know, just feel like no, you realize you do belong, but also realizing that actually, yeah, systemically, structurally, perhaps imposter syndrome is a way of naming this type of psychological realization that you are in in an inhospitable environment. What do you think of that? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And um, 
I don't know. I, I feel, again, I, I said it before, but I just feel weird about always having to be an imposter. Mm-hmm. Like, when do you ever make it? But I also understand that there are times when that is necessary to name it and to be for it to be relevant. Um, and I don't want to, I just, I guess I'm just conflicted because I don't ever want to be someone who just doesn't acknowledge something that's actually there. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's there, but I also want to have the space, even if it's only for myself, um, to be able to like, just have the jitters and to just be afraid. I guess, like, I just, I just feel that it gets overused. Mm. And I don't, and for me, I don't care if, if other people are saying it. I just, when people are trying to ascribe it to, like, everything that I personally do. So, um, so I don't know. And I, I just feel like having to deal with imposter syndrome in itself is something that maybe women of color have to deal with more. Like just the idea that I have to question whether something is or is not imposter syndrome. Whereas I don't think that's necessarily something that um, men or white men have to do or ever questioned yeah. about. Like if someone, if my, if like my male colleague just said like, oh, they were nervous about something. Was someone ever going to go to them and like, oh, you're just, you feel like an imposter, you have imposter syndrome. I don't think so. But if I show mm-hmm. an ounce of fear um, or hesitation at something, like all, the, all of a sudden, like I have low self-esteem or I don't think I deserve to be somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I like just this, don't yeah. like that. I just don't like that feeling. Especially yeah, when that, yeah. I don't, like that wasn't what crossed my mind at the moment. You know, like maybe like, if for the conversation that we were having before, I was actually really referring to the jitters of what happens before a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that when you are recording or before you give a speech or before someone performs, you do get nervous and you do wonder, like, I created this thing. Are people going to like it the same way I do? I, I wasn't really talking about, really talking about whether I am, um, thought what I had is you know it was a different level and I wasn't talking I was talking about performance issues not like the actual actor performing which I know many performers feel whether they're an athlete or an actor um, or anyone about to give a big speech that they worked really hard on and so I just you know kind of internally battle against like that need to always say that I feel this way because I'm an imposter because it's actually that's not true Mm-hmm. I can see what, I can what, see what you're saying. You, yeah, yeah, because like I do think that I have felt imposter syndrome, but mm-hmm. I also feel moments of anxiety and worry, which I don't think are, is correlated to feeling like an imposter, which I think is um, part part of what I, I think that we're both talking about here. That there's also this way. I think that perhaps on a much broader way for marginalized people or like women of color in the academy like there are so many studies that are done about like we're disadvantaged in x way but to continually always like refer to those statistics and make all our experiences reductive to that is in itself really like on the one hand it confirms a type of, it confirms reality and it's something mm-hmm. that's systemic and structural but at the same time 
if absolutely everything I do, I just think I continually think like, oh, this thing is rigged against me in such and such a way. Like, um, it becomes very reductive. It seems to, does that make sense at all? No, it does. And, and then, I mean, what if, what if my colleagues then go, oh, well, she's nervous. So I'm not even, she feels like she doesn't belong here. So I'm going to, I'm going to now not give her an opportunity or something. Mm-hmm. I um, I mean, maybe this is a question I have for you. It's like, how do you find the balance between the moments where you do you feel like an imposter and then there's a moment where you feel misidentified? Like, like no, I'm nervous because this happened yesterday and it threw me off. Or you know what I mean? Like, how do you mm-hmm. balance those moments? I think that I'll, I had this great conversation with one of our listeners and one of my friends, Amber mm-hmm. Vasquez. So this is when I want to cite Amber. And I was talking <laughs> about imposter syndrome and she was, she made this fantastic point that she is a woman of color. Like she has every right to be there. She doesn't feel like an imposter. It's everyone else that should feel like they're fake. And she's had this great term that like, she thinks of herself as being an infiltrator, an infiltrator into um, a system that you know, wasn't designed for us. So like, I thought it was a really fantastic and subversive, like mm-hmm. rethinking rather than just being an imposter because you're trying to fit into, into this preexisting cookie cutter mold, which obviously is gendered and racialized in ways that are not hospitable to us. Instead, we are actually going in and making this change and perhaps making, trying to redefine what the system is capable of. And I was like, damn, Amber, that's great. I'm totally going to cite you when we talk, yeah. talk about this with Liz. Yeah, that's but, awesome. But I also think that um, to get back to, what you were saying, I think in our clip is like, on the one hand, like, while we don't want to, um, while we want to give ourselves the space to say it's not imposter syndrome, at the same time, we sort of feel uneasy about denying it altogether, because often it is important for people to have those conversations. And I'd say like, for example, um, for me, I think that naming imposter syndrome is really important when I'm talking to people who are early on in the program, just because it's Mm -hmm. a way of performing a type of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, especially when people are first entering it and just start trying to get used to so many of these unspoken aspects about the professionalization and like just what the norms of the profession are. Um, And so imposter syndrome is a, is a easy way to sort of name that type of condition or as a way of, performing a type of vulnerability that I hope is constructive and useful for people Mm -hmm. to then feel like they can voice their own concerns. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And, and again, I I think this might be one of the real hardships or of this, this idea. It's because um, maybe more, especially as a woman of color, you always have to, defend and you have you're like you're expending yourself to make this a safe space for other people to feel like it's okay to admit things like that which means you're always it's like another burden that you're carrying to Mm -hmm. be to be open to that um I don't know I think that's I think that's part of like the emotional work that um like that's something that I've definitely been learning during my time in grad in graduate school, and especially through my friendship with Liz. And <laughs> I've told Liz that a little bit already, but like, I think that going in, 
people are so insecure that um, a lot of people develop different coping strategies. And one definitely is like part of it is this performance of competence that people perhaps um, overly ascribe to. And so that's why it's important to then get to a place of being able to be, to be vulnerable because obviously there are um, insecurities that we all share. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's like, but at the same time with these acts of vulnerability, like we're not making ourselves completely open because it could be really exhausting. And I think that there's also this, this delicate balance then about like, of course it's beneficial for all of us in um, an academic culture to be open, but also it's extremely exhausting, but also only being open is the only way that you can get other people to open and feel comfortable. I was also it's thinking like that, um, yeah. when imposter syndrome becomes an identity, I think it becomes mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. It's just funny because when people talk about imposter syndrome, I don't think this is the kind of conversation they're having about it. Um, Usually there are people sharing these stories about how they felt like an imposter. And I have to admit that I don't, I guess because I don't want to have that conversation, I almost feel like I'm separating myself from people or something, or I feel like I'm abandoning other people. I don't know. What is, what am I trying to say? It just feels like I'm supposed to feel a certain way and not, and I don't. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean about me? Yeah. Cause like there's something about that. You want to respect your individual experience, but also you don't want to invalidate other people's experience that might be put under the name of imposter syndrome. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, or, or the idea that I'm also supposed to be talking about it. You know, I but I think it's also okay. So you've known me for a while, Zion. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I try very hard to be honest and open with myself. Like I check in with myself a lot, and I try to to think about these kinds of things. And then when I have issues, I try to talk them out and figure out why I feel this way and then solve said problem. And I'm always talking about things. And so I don't know if, I guess I'm trying to think about what, why do I dislike imposter syndrome so much? And then why am I so afraid that by me saying disliking imposter syndrome, that's like me saying I'm a Republican or something. Like I'm defecting, like, you know, it's like when, when someone is like, well, actually I think some conservative values are pretty cool. And it's like, how dare you? This is a liberal environment. You, how dare you, you know, not go with the tribe. I don't, I don't know, Zine. I just know that I don't like always having to say I'm an imposter. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that especially when I don't feel like one, when people are trying to like Mm -hmm. say, Oh, this is imposter syndrome. I think part of it is like imposter syndrome also is a way this blanket term of naming so many other things that, and ends up perhaps reducing the complexity of them. Cause like, I think that one way that imposter syndrome tends to be used is just more when people, when you get the perspective about how little, you know, in your discipline. And that's actually, I think often a productive moment because it, allows you to mm-hmm. see your areas of ignorance, but also uh, watch your own development. And I think actually, if you reframe it, it becomes really exciting because your area of study becomes 
this place you can continually explore and grow in. Um, but imposter syndrome might be like naming this first moment when you step out and like look into this, the great unknown. Um, for example, I think another way that imposter syndrome might name something is that I don't know if this is the case when you took classes in STEM fields, but definitely in the humanities in the classes that we take as seminars, there's a way that people perform a certain type of intelligence. Um, mm -hmm. when we talk about our texts or theories and stuff like that. And there's a really particular like performative style that's really aggressive that tends to be read as being held up, I think, implicitly as this sort of idea of like, oh, that's a smart person. And like, you know, people are sort of performing for each other in the class and which is something that I've always found really frustrating. So I was really happy to get beyond coursework. Um, and sometimes people could just feel outside of what it means to perform a certain type of intelligence. And that sometimes perhaps is named as imposter syndrome, but it's because it just seems like different forms of expressing intelligence or talking critically about things are not weighed in the same way in that particular space mm -hmm. um, or different types of perspectives or viewing um, intellectual problems are not given the same weight or like, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So when you, when you talk about imposter syndrome or you mentioned that you've at times felt like an imposter, what were some examples of that, if you don't mind? Definitely when I first came to the program at Cornell. Um, for our listeners, um, as a reminder, of course, I'm Canadian, <laughs> and I did all my previous education in Canada. And I think Canada in general, we're sort of our cultural mindset is so much defined by the looming presence of the U.S. in every economically, in terms of policy, politically, and also in terms of education, because we have fantastic institutions, but like the branding of U.S. institutions is so powerful and has such cultural force mm -hmm. that like it, it, it exerts the type of power over us that, for example, our top universities are, if they're trying to get ahead, are more likely to hire people from U.S. like Ivies um, and other peer institutions oh. as a way of getting ahead and sort of like forgetting that we ourselves are valid. And so like mm -hmm. I definitely felt ambivalent with the fact that I felt like in order to get ahead in English literature, which is such an embattled academic job market, I had to make myself as competitive as possible, which meant applying to the U.S. and going to a place like Cornell. But at the same time as I was doing it, I was very much aware that I was part of this brain drain and sort of buying into this narrative about U.S. Canadian superiority, inferiority in general. But nonetheless, when I, when I got there also here, I felt like a fish out of water in many ways uh, as an international student, as a woman of color. But also coming in, one thing that I found very intimidating initially was the fact that my cohort at the time seemed to be dominated by straight um, white uh, heterosexual men who came from Ivy backgrounds mm -hmm. or, uh, or equivalents. And it did feel like this very alien culture to me. Like it seemed like I was an imposter insofar as like, obviously that my experience was anomalous or like I was outside of a certain sphere of norms. And I started like worrying like, oh, maybe this is a real, I uh, like, 
even as critical, obviously, as I, I was about um, the way that universities brand themselves, it was very easy to also fall into like, look how look how natural these people feel in the space. Mm-hmm. I feel insecure in the space. Maybe it is because my credentials aren't quite the same, even though obviously we are all accepted in the same program. Um, and so I feel like that's one way that I did feel, I felt out of place and that an imposter syndrome perhaps names that to some extent. Likewise, I, as, to go back to my earlier point in seminars in the humanities, I definitely have felt and very felt very frustrated that there's a type of academic performance that goes in for graduate students where you try to, you know, you expound for very long periods of time mm-hmm. about things and you like bring in all the theorists. And on the one hand, obviously it's been good training for me to, to like talk on and on and on for the podcast, <laughs> but at the same time, like it becomes incredibly frustrating because it doesn't become about dialogue. It becomes about people showboating. Um, but then after a while, what I realized is, um, I could often, I realized like, wait a second, I could see through the fact that this person doesn't know anything mm-hmm. or hasn't really read this text properly. Um, to give another example of imposter syndrome or what could be called imposter syndrome, although I don't think it's precisely named by that. I can't help but wonder, like, maybe that was part of the impulse for me to reach out to you to do this podcast, for example, because I felt like, like Liz is going to be better at this than, than I am, or like, I have something to, to learn from you. And oh, I can't do really? it on my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think that, again, like, in general, I've, I've learned so much from you. And in like, I've a lot learned of, like, a lot ways. from you. <laughs> but and I like, definitely feel like the really... podcast, really? Well, I did teach you that you didn't have an owl plant, but I'm sorry. <laughs> listen, listen, I figured it out on the internet. <laughs> Should we give the backstory for this? No, we don't need to give any backstory okay. about my planting abilities or lack thereof. It was cold and I left the window open and it froze and I tried to heal it by giving it more water. But jade plants do not need more water. In fact, that is why it was doing so horribly. So I think that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think you just gave our readers, uh, the, our listeners um, the story. I but... think that my jade plant was an imposter. And it wanted to be an aloe plant. But <laughs> it was not. Poor thing. <sighs> Poor thing. Rest in the ground. Rest in the ground. I guess, like, how would you want to describe, Liz, about moments when you felt not exactly like an imposter, but, like, out of place or, like, moments of anxiety? Mm, Yeah, I... mm, When I was an undergrad studying physics, um, I, I guess I always wanted to do physics. I really did, maybe since 11. And so there I am in college and, you know, at Penn at this really big school. And I know it's an Ivy and I understand what that means for my family and for me. And I'm like the only black person in the class. And it wasn't really until that moment in time that I, um, I, t- I told myself that none of the, the racial things that people had ever told me, racist and sexist things, you know, black people can't do physics, women can't do physics or math. I kind of told myself that didn't matter, that that's what my teachers and family and friends and even just random strangers would kind of say to me. 
And so when I got into school and I got in my classes, you know, those things were in my head. And I guess I felt a need to perform. I kind of gave myself this pressure of I need to be the best or I'm going to make all black people look bad. Um, I don't really know if that's imposter syndrome, but that's definitely like too much pressure to put on one person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it's really not kind of if I could add, accurate. That's yeah, if I could add to that, it seems to me that like this is where this conversation about imposter syndrome dovetails with talking about stereotype threat. Mm. Um, and they and are that, related, right? They're in the same book, Claude. Yeah. Steele. No. I, I never it's mind. It's been a while since I read <laughs> Whistling Vivaldi, but it, there definitely seems to be this component that like if we buy into imposter syndrome too much, it perhaps could become a type of stereotype threat that can overdefine us and. By rejecting imposter syndrome is also a way of fighting it back against the restrictions of of stereotype threat. Yeah, because I I had a hard time. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. That anxiety bled over into my testing and into my actually actual ability to you know get like the the grades I thought I deserved. And I got some help with that eventually, and. Um, but I had a lot of social anxiety as well because I was so unlike, not only was I so unlike a lot of people that I met in undergrad, but I was unlike a lot of people in my physics class. And um, I definitely remember reaching this one point where I was doing homework with these um, guys and, you know, they were talking louder than me and they would have the same answer that I had just said, but no one heard me or I would have an answer and they'd say like, oh, well, why did you get that? And I just like my brain, my brain would freeze because I'm so anxious. And then there definitely was a point in time where I just kind of stopped and listened to them and realized that they weren't smarter than me in any way. They just had bigger egos. Someone in their life had (laughs) cultivated their ability to talk and give answers and they believe they are important therefore they acted like they were important therefore they said their answers with confidence even when they were wrong and that said when they were proven wrong they didn't the whole world didn't die you know nothing it didn't end and like the way I imagined it would if I had a wrong answer and someone told me I was wrong they just said oh that's the right answer and they would write down the answer and move on and I kind of it was like a teaching moment for me and I just like again they're not smarter than me. They just have bigger egos. And then I kind of made this mission to just like, well, where is my ego? Why have I let it deflate so much that I don't even have confidence to have, to believe that my answer is right? Like that's a part of, and I started connecting it with the learning experience and how physics is a lot about problem solving and to solve problems, you have to work through the problems and you have to talk about it and being able to explain things is also how you enforce understanding which anyone who teaches, you know, STEM, they'll often tell you that, you know, there's learning it and there's trying to explain to someone else that reinforces. And I think that goes into a lot of why people like these interactive teaching techniques. So I am having that mentality. I guess it's equivalent to when people say when you give a public speech, you just imagine everyone naked. Mm -hmm. I then in turn started to realize, like, they just have a bigger ego. They're not, but they're not better than me. And that kind of helped me be more comfortable around people. And then secondly, I just, sorry, but 
the the group of people that I was trying to harm were for just douchebags, dishonestly. And <laughs> and so I found a better group of people and it was a much better experience. So it was just finding where I belonged, finding people who appreciated me and respected what I had to offer and also just not coming in within my head already thinking that I was somehow different and had to prove myself more. Yeah, I think this relates to a conversation we've had off the podcast, uh, the way that um, often women and as women of color, um, we hold ourselves to perhaps higher, more perfectionist standards than than men and like then self-eliminate much earlier on. Mm-hmm. I think that you're telling me about when you're mentoring uh, one of your uh, undergraduate protégés. Yeah. And there was a study that I believe was done with Harvard Economics that like once um, if a a woman got like a B, then she automatically felt that she wasn't doing well enough because it was an A, so she'd drop out. But like guys who were doing C's just stuck with a major and then they continued, like they just ended up getting a degree in it because they just did not care because they're just fine with it. Um, right. And, and that's what when, I did at the yeah. end of, I just, I thought about quitting physics many times. I had a lot of challenges, but I would ask myself, is this still the coolest subject in the world? And now I, I might have been crying at the time, but I said, yes, this is the coolest thing I have ever seen. I still love what I'm doing. And then I kept the major and I got into grad school and it all worked out. But um, but I guess it's kind of what scares me about my stance on um, my feeling towards imposter syndrome or like the identity of it. Because mm-hmm. when I was talking with one of my um mentees my protégés and she was talking about how she wanted to switch majors because she had gotten average on an exam and she didn't know if she was going to be good enough to get into grad school and I just kind of looked at her and I wanted to shake her because like what are you saying this makes no sense you are intelligent you got average at Cornell you you're fine um this is not the end of the world. Don't you dare quit on something that you love. And, and I guess like some people need to hear that because some people aren't hearing that in other spaces in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I don't want to reject this. I don't want to deny someone that opportunity to kind of come to their own terms with what is imposter syndrome. Am I enacting it right now? And then how do I move past that? But I also want to feel like I can move past having um, this kind of cloud over everything that I do or having Mm -hmm. to then, you know, think about my interactions with other people and think, what are they thinking of me? I guess I'm not saying that the world isn't real. I'm not saying I've never had difficulties because I, you know, I have, Mm -hmm. but but in most of them, you know, my, my, my thinking at the end of it was like, I deserve better. How dare they? And yes. I start looking for solutions. And so I didn't feel like I didn't belong. I felt like they didn't see what I saw. And I was prepared to do whatever it takes to make them see what I saw. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going in circles. <laughs> No, no, I, oh, I can, I was thinking that likewise, like the feeling of being out of place, out of place, rather than accepting that 
I feel like an imposter then becomes, as you sort of describe it, this motivating factor to make change, to be like, no, people like me and other people who might feel like this are just as valid and we need to make a space for them. And I think this comes in the form of, say, having women of color specific groups in academia or more mm -hmm. specifically within the discipline. Um, like, the, I think that there is for me, for example, in the field of study I'm in, um, early, early 19th century Americanist literature and culture, like it is an overwhelmingly white space, even though there's been such inroads made in terms of working about texts by and about people of color, but still there's such a disparity between scholars of color actually being in a room. I'll often be on panels that are talking about texts describing or talking about people of color. And then I'll be I'll like, wait, look around, I'm like, wait a second. I'm like the only person of color in this room. Like there's a mm -hmm. disparity between content of what we're studying and the actual bodies that are doing that work. Mm -hmm. And initially it is sort of overwhelming and depressing. And I feel alienated, perhaps even like an imposter. But then I guess I feel like this rage or motivating yeah, 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 rage. Let's just say rage. rage. Like, and I was like, yeah. no, I, I deserve a space here. So do the, um, my peers. How do we make this better? How do we name it, call it out, try to make safe spaces for people like us? Yeah. And for me, what helped was I stopped comparing myself to other people in, in the sense that, um, well, they're not a black woman. So are they going to understand me? Maybe not. Are they going to say, like, things that I say? Probably not. They didn't grow up in Mississippi. But those things don't impact um, my research. Like, I can still do research and have my personality. And I just started going, like, well, I'm not going to be the way they are because I am not them. And we do not have the same experience. And I started thinking of our lanes as kind of, I am me and they are them and we are doing research together than going, I need to be like them so I can do research together. And, yes. and that was something yes. that happened over a period of time, definitely, that I think has gotten way easier the higher, higher up. The longer I was in graduate school, the longer that I was around and kind of was able to, hey, this is my research this is what I'm doing you can be with me or you cannot but I will still be doing research and I will still be giving I, talks and still be doing fabulous mm -hmm. this also makes me think of something that I think I've encountered in the realm of philosophy and I know that we do have some listeners in philosophy that could probably expound on this better but there's something called standpoint theory mm -hmm. um which makes this point that like all forms of truth are relative, but not in the way that means that none of them are valid, mm -hmm. but like that say speaking as like a Chinese Canadian woman, there's a certain type of truth in that like in order to talk, to proliferate truth, it's not um, even though certain standpoints are seen as more valid than others. Instead it's about like my understanding is something like recognizing that all these things are valid and are productive and can work together but they're also individual and unique in ways that are enriching and not incapacitating. Mm. Mm. And what does that mean for you? The um, I think that means for, for me with my scholarship is not having to feel again, sort of, as you're saying to be the same as other people, but to recognize that perhaps my out of placeness, say like 
being someone who's not American, working on American studies, there's something unique about my perspective about what I can bring to the table that will can enrich this discipline, that there's there are things that I can then do in my research and my work that are not the same as other people's, but are ultimately enriching to the profession as a whole and to the people around me. Mm-hmm. And I apologize to our listeners in case I did I did not explain what standpoint theory was correctly at all. Um, a, a guest oh, no. I'd like to bring on eventually is going to be in philosophy, <laughs> and she might talk about that or like do a better explanation. But... <laughs> Sorry, Zion. I um I, I would love to hear what standpoint theory is one day. <laughs> I know you'll tell me. I'll 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 look it up or I'll wait for this awesome podcast that we're gonna have. Mm-hmm. But maybe a good closing point for this is that I think there are different times in our lives, there are different spaces that we inhabit, and our relationship to imposter syndrome because of that is different. And mm-hmm. maybe if anything, I I want people to be able to have it if they need it, when they need it, to have that language Um. And when they want to become someone who, who like, I don't know if someone who, someone who claims it and then maybe someone who kind of counteracts it and tries to make those spaces to help people not feel like imposters. Um, Or then maybe people who even flip it around and use it as a way to be better scientists or better, um, better academics because again I do know people Mm -hmm. who say like that feeling never goes away but you use it to to channel like your next step like all right what do I not know and then how do I get to know that better yeah it becomes exciting it becomes a way of pointing to new avenues that you can explore and it also say that um this is sometimes also what happens when I talk to my undergraduate friends and I'd like to shout out to Emily cause she's really mm-hmm. awesome. But sometimes I think that they, um, a phrase that came, I was like, Oh, we're just mere undergraduates. Mm-hmm. That's not the case at all. Like it's not, you shouldn't feel invalidated. It's just that you're at a different stage and you're doing great. You and really are. You're doing great. Undergrads yeah. If you're listening. Mm-hmm. And likewise to people who are early on in the PhD programs. And I know that like tenure track faculty feel like that. And you're where you need to be. Like some, yeah, you're where you need to be. Um, comparing yourself to people who are more advanced is not the way to think about it. It could give you goals for where you want to be, but you know, don't measure yourself by the same same standards. You are awesome. Which is not to say you shouldn't measure yourself by standards, but you should yeah. be careful of which, make sure they're the right ones. They're the ones that are most accurate to measure yourself by for actual mm-hmm. progress. Yeah, like maybe there's a difference between measurements versus aspirations Mm. and not to confuse the two of them. Yeah. I like that. And maybe measuring yourself against people, not so good. Measuring yourself against, um, maybe not against, but, you know, there's like a a job you want to have or a fellowship you want to have. And then thinking, well, what does it take to get to that goal that you have versus going that person is doing better than me, you know, but you don't even, probably don't even want to be what that person is. 
So that was our discussion about imposter syndrome. And we realized that what we said was very personal and that it was reflective of my experience and of Zion's experience. And we would actually really like to hear what you guys have to say. Sorry. And sneeze about. <laughs> <laughs> sneeze me. Um, if you guys have any stories you'd like to share or any experiences you ever had with imposter syndrome and how you've dealt with it, feel free to interact with us on our Facebook page um, at PhDivas Podcast, or you can send us an email at lizandine at gmail.com. That's great. We look forward to hearing you. And um, stay safe. Have a great end of semester. Good luck. Take self-care. It's very serious. Take some breaks in between grading papers and whatever else you do. And have a good day.